Welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by Peter Yaspensky. Today we're discussing Chapter 2 and you'll find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast. You'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today my panel members are Peter Lancet and Sue Flanagan and I'm Alice Flanagan. So welcome Pete and Sue. Let's start with the Kantian problem that Spensky starts with and he says that Kant propounded the problem but did not give the answer. And not having read Kant, I'm only going to take Spensky's word for that, but uh, I think all the way through this book and especially here, Kant is referred to as proposing a theory but he's not proposing how we get round it or how we change it, et cetera, et cetera. So I suppose when he starts with this camp propounded the problem but did not give the answer, well, I'm, I'm starting to think that, you know, maybe Spensky does have the answer. But uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you guys to let me know what you think. So we'll start with you, Pete. Well, I'm just going to say that if Kant proposed a problem and didn't pose a solution at all, then it's not a theory, is it? It's just a question. It's just so a question, just, exactly. Yeah. So there wasn't, there wasn't, there isn't even a Kantian theory here. There is just a question. That's, I, st- I, I think I kind of mentioned this in the first podcast on chapter one, that that's, I think that's oversimplifying it so that Uspensky can get to what he wants to say. Kant is, like I said last week, what we would call today passive aggressive in as much as he, he poses the problem, but believe me, the book is like this thick and you are well on the way to having what he thinks the solution is by the time you get to the end of it. And an easier way to look at how that works is to look at the Socratic dialogues in Plato, where Socrates always says, I don't know anything. I'm just asking questions. But by the end of, by the end of the dialogue, these smart ass know-it-alls who come to his symposia, um, are well aware of what he thinks the answer might be. He doesn't give a final solution. Oh, that's a terrible phrase. But he doesn't give a final solution. He he takes you down roads where you become so narrow in your focus that you will come to an opinion of a solution of your own. And Kant does much the same thing. I like the idea of yeah. calling him passive-aggressive because I don't like I, I like that too, yeah. And he's not here to defend himself, so go for it. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I'm not He's not going to stab me out of the ether. No, no. Especially in a parallel, in a parallel dimension. <laughs> he might. If you start feeling a pain in your side, start, start recanting it. You come, in, come, on, no, you come no, on in, Sue. I was, just going, to, I was just going to say that I think one of the most things I, I love best about this book is that it makes my brain hurt and I have to stop and think about yeah. so many things. And the more often I read yes. it, the more I realise how little I know. But Opening a door is in your mind is is the most important first step of anything at all, and it's wonderful to hear what other people have said before because it gives a framework, and we can launch from that and say yes or no, um, we'll accept or not accept. We can accept now um, or not accept now, and then as we progress, come back, revisit, and change. And I think that yeah. is the most valuable part. Part of the so valuable about doing this whole podcast is about not being fixed, but being open. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think that's that's uh, Spensky as well. He's he's taking us along with a reasoning, you know, he's building on his theory, but he's not, not all the way through. He's just he's not saying well this is this is it. He's just giving you something to think about. So he then talks about Hinton and he talks to he talks about Hinton quite a lot during the book. Um, in this chapter he talks about uh, Hinton, Hinton's point of view, which he's aligned to. So he doesn't, he doesn't quote everybody verbatim and he doesn't quote the bits that don't agree with his way of thinking either. And he's quite open with that. He says, you know, I pull out the bits that work for me, that, that support my point of view. And in this, he's talking, it starts to talk about how, and I think we touched on this last time as well, we might have fourth, fifth, sixth dimensions, but we're living here in a three dimension. And, you know, it's no point in saying, Oh, well, we have to deny that this is an illusion or whatever. We're here. We're living in this dimension. It's not, it's not a hindrance to create, even if it's 
true or not true, to, if we are creating a space sense and a time sense in our consciousness, we're doing that to enjoy this world. So he's saying that a lot of people, the, the, you know, the philosophers of the time are, are looking at that as a hindrance where he doesn't look at that as a hindrance. He looks at that as allowing us to enjoy the space that we, our physical form is existing in um, and experiencing. So he says that if you want to know something about the essence of things or the things in themselves outside of our our experience, then what we need to do is remove the self-element. So he talks about if we talk about the sun and we say the sun is a hot body that revolves around or the earth revolves around, he says we're saying something about ourselves because we see that it's revolving around us and um, it's also something about the sun. Pete, you're, you're itching to say something, well, please do. Simply because it's something that I notice and I, I, and I haven't been able to get my head around this. In the quote that you're uh, discussing now from Hinton, Hinton's talking about if we were to remove ourselves to some far galaxy or something and we were talking to people that weren't uh, from our perspective who might have an understanding of four or five dimensions and we said to them that we described the sun as being this hot globe that he says we tell them that it revolves around us. Well, Hinton was writing at a time when he would have known that the sun doesn't revolve around us as the way that we perceive it. We perceive as uh, as we uh, revolve around the sun. We can argue that one if we want, but that would take us way off topic. Um, but the but he would have known that. So I wonder whether that was a mistake on Hinton's part. But then I I guess that it can't be. I mean, first of all, he isn't stupid. Secondly, um, he would have gone over this a hundred times before publication. I mean, in in metaphysical. Uh, but he does actually quote. He does say, and 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 then the and then the aliens say, "Ah, you've actually told us something about you, because we put ourselves in the center." Mm. Yeah, I'll pull up the quote. It says, "If we told them that we came from this world and were to describe the sun to them, saying that it was a bright hot body which moved around us, there's that." That's that what thing. I mean. They yeah, they would reply, "You have told us something about the sun, but you have also told us something about yourselves." So. Yeah, so yeah, I think you're right because even I was going. Hang on, the sun doesn't move around us. Yeah, am I have I misinterpreted it though? I, no, I, I don't not know. at all. I no, no, yeah, absolutely. Making a clear point, just simply to, to I think to say that we do tend to relate things always to us, to where we sit. Otherwise, why is the sun important? The sun is important because we have a perception of this as opposed to any other star or galaxy. But but in here as well, he also talks. Hinton goes on to talk about space sense or the intuition of space. And yeah. I'm wondering whether this is the, the point that he's, he's wanting to bring up to us is that the intuition is the inner teaching, uh, I think. of So he's talking about us having a, the concepts are here. We, we're, we're relating it to ourselves. And, um, you know, perhaps that, I don't know the, he's, what's in his mind, of course, but I wonder if that's not part of it. He's trying to, to, to make a point that we relate everything to us in, uh, I do understand, yeah, I do understand that, yep. Yeah. But he does go on then later. No, but he just, it's just because that later on, he does correct it. He describes the sun in terms of we circling around it. Not many, not many sentences later. I, I wish I'd actually um, put colored lines through it now and, so that I could go back to it. So, so he was, he is quite aware of it, even in the, even in the same section somewhere. So he has, a, he has a rubbish, a rubbish editor. That's what I'd be saying. A rubbish editor. <laughs> to be honest with you, I would have thought that, but we're talking about early 20th century, late yeah. 19th century at best. Trust me on this one. We're not talking about millennial snowflakes here. These people would have been precise. So he's got a meaning. He's got a meaning. He definitely, and I think you might be right, Sue. I think you might have it right that he's actually trying to put across the point that we are self-centered, that we do put ourselves at the center of the universe from the point well, of view of our not silly either, of because Spensky's no, he's not. This quote out as well, hasn't he? So yes, absolutely. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry to take. I don't think we should be spending too much time on that. It's just that I wanted to know what people thought about 
that because mm. you know, I, I was, I, it really was making my headache trying to think, why has he put it that way? And it's a good segue into the next point that he makes is what is space? Um, mm. You know, is it, and, and you were saying the uh, intuition of space, Sue, and I think that that's the point he's making is, is space something we perceive in our consciousness or is it something else? You know, um, could I just ask a question before we start a little bit on that? I was, because what I'd like to know is what do you both think is the meaning here of the word intuition? Because I think that's a, a very important part because we now have a, a colloquial term, our intuition. But, and Peter, yeah. you've said the philosophy at the beginning of the last, of the 1900s, did intuition have a very set meaning? Because this is a very specifically tight English text. It's not yeah, a okay. it's not colloquial. Coming from where Uspensky comes from, particularly, I would say that he he would be seeing intuition the way that we casually use it now, this, this sort of inner voice that, that, that leads us to the right things. By this time, by the time, and because of who Uspensky is, he is fully aware of the Theosophical Society of um, Helena Blavatsky and obviously carried forward by Alice Bailey. Um, he was well aware of this new um, outpouring of occult science and the, the orders like the Order of the Golden Dawn particularly, and he would have been well aware of that. Um, uh, he, he was in fact involved in, in all of this sort of flurry of outpouring of stuff. So he would have known this Non, when I say nonsensical, I mean this knowledge that we get not from the five senses, this inner, inner voice that, that gives us the answers to our problems if only we let it. And he knows this. It's, he's, I'm pretty certain that he's talking about the innate knowledge that we're, I'm going to say that we're born with, but it goes beyond that as we're going to go to later in this book, that consciousness cannot be destroyed or die and we, and so on. But I think he's talking about this, this thing that, that is always there, whether we choose to listen to it or not. Because what I'm, I'm going to say next is that there's a, a really, it, it's almost a dichotomy, isn't it, when we say intuition of space? Because intuition being a subjective uh, concept, and then he's talking about the perceptive, or he uses the word except, uh, objective consciousness of, of space. So we're, we're combining some very different concepts here, aren't we? Yeah, so we have a subjective perception of an objective thing. The thing is the only thing we can say. I never think of intuition in terms of the physical environment. I always think of intuition in terms of uh, a feeling that we should be doing something or we should follow a pathway or we... You know, we, we, we like that particular person or we feel like, you know, so it's always a subjective thing, but there's obviously there's something more they're getting at here. I was going to say, I think, I think, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll just jump in. I think what he's saying here is when you in, intuit something, you sense that there's something more to it than you're seeing. And that's what I think he's talking about when he says the intuit of space. When we're talking about intuitive space, though, it's something that we don't have to think about. For example, if we had to say, is that really a wall? Is that really a chair? And then like bang on it to make sure that when we sit on it, it's actually there. You couldn't actually function as a human being. We couldn't have a human experience if we have to have that. Certain things are intuitively known. They are, yeah. they are givens for our experience. That doesn't mean that they're givens for an absolute reality, but they're givens in terms of us being able to have a human experience within a, a three-dimensional perception of reality. Um, very, very, very important. Yeah, very importantly, I mean, uh, smart people don't get this. Very smart people don't get this. There's a story about, I mentioned um, before, the 18th century, early 19th century metaphysicists, the English uh, movement, well, one of them was Irish, but you get, you get the idea of um, the empiricists, and one of them was Charles Barclay. Barclay um, was proposing this reduction of not being able to know physical reality and then that everything is an illusion and so on. 
And Dr. Johnson, the man of great man of letters, heard about this and in a discussion he kicked a boulder and said, thus I refute it. Well, that was a cheap shot. And Dr. Johnson ought to have applied his incredible brain in a better way than that because he, he didn't refute it in any way whatsoever. He just made himself look stupid in the eyes of thinking people. You know? So, so I think into it. Yeah, sorry. So, I think the value of the concept is saying when you link the two together, it opens up a door for exploring the concept of space, yeah. doesn't it? As opposed mm, to it being a known. It brings it into the concept of um, experience as opposed to factual knowledge, perhaps. Yeah. The, the horror of it is, though, that intu in, our intuition is also coloured by our conscious perception. Uh, the conscious mind, at best, at best, can handle maybe seven give or take one or two in exceptional circumstances, pieces of information at any one moment. Whereas the unconscious mind, the subconscious, the one that's managing all of your organs, your heart rate and, and everything else, keeping your temperature right, this can seemingly handle a million things. This is where intuition comes from. This The voice comes from there. What we've got a problem with is managing the fact that our conscious mind will colour our intuitive perceptions of things. So we all have actually different perceptions of the same thing, believe it or not. We do, in, in subtle, different ways. But consciousness may also sit a bit higher than just our... Because there's a consciousness that manifests through our brain, and there's a consciousness that is higher again, I well, believe. Well, if we follow... So, we, yeah. so it becomes well, quite we, an interesting concept again, doesn't it? Yeah, but, you you know, I, I, I'm not disputing that because I'm, I'm with Carl Jung here because there is this collective unconscious that we are all part of, I mean part of mainly, I don't even like using the word part because it, it makes it sound like we can separate it but we, we you know, we, but I, I absolutely understand this collective the collective unconscious actually has all of the objective knowledge that there could possibly be in other words we're going to delve into the terms of the infinite now and I know that in this chapter um, he quotes um, Helena Blavatsky and Blavatsky talks about the infinite and how we misconstrue the infinite and she she scoffs at people's use of the, the term infinite but um yeah I'm, i i understand that we do have that but it's our conscious mind that colors our perception and makes us have makes us think that we're having different experiences of what is in effect the same thing and so intuition kicks in there it's colored by that anyway i want to bring that that thought into the next thought because we're talking about he's talking about you, you've made a great segue there for the infinite, and uh, he's talking about space. He talks about uh, our concept of space being as a three-dimensional, a geometric conception of space. Three perpendicular lines. We can we can measure three dimensions in terms of height, length, and breadth. So it's it's three lines perpendicular to each other. And his question he poses is: if, if there is an infinite, an infinity then we should have an infinite number of um, lines that can be at right angles to each other and not um, not sort of parallel to each other. So why do, why do we choose three if space possesses an infinite extension in all directions? What is it about our geometry that says, well, we can only measure three of them? Do you, do you want to step in, Sue? Sure. Look, I, I think infinity is one of those wonderful concepts that lets us know how little we know. And um, because infinity challenges the boundaries of, uh, you know, and it doesn't really make sense, does it, to say we have an infinite universe or we have uh, an infinite, I mean, it, because um, when we, we are in three dimensions, we do have uh, a limit. So, so a cube has a boundary, whereas... And, and our Earth has a boundary, whereas the infinite universe has, in theory, no boundaries. And I think this is, this shows us that we are not, we haven't got all the answers. The concept of infinity is a, um, is a, I, oh, to me, is, it says, says, I can't really explain it, I can't get a handle on it, so I'll just expand it out forever and never really have to deal with it. And, uh, and okay. I think that's part of why we don't, what's part, I think that goes to why the fourth dimension makes so much sense. 
because I don't think the answer to infinity is sitting in three dimensions. I think that's perfect. Well, I think that's a perfect summary. And it doesn't. We've chosen, whatever we are here having this experience in a a three-dimensional arena that we've created. In other words, we've, we've actually taken, we've put bars around. We've created a prison. If I like the word prison for ourselves to have an experience in. It's almost like going to a theme park where once you've bought the ticket, you can get in. There's loads and loads. The whole world is outside the theme park, but we're having the experience of the theme park. And we've chosen to have the third, the three-dimensional experience. Do you, do you realize that we could possibly be having um, four, fifth, sixth, seventh other experiences simultaneously in parallel with this one at the, at the same time. But we'll have, but, but we will, but we will have, we will have no awareness of it. Well, interestingly enough, um, there's a book, a very famous book called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa. Oh, Yogi. I love that book. Love well, it. you do. So you will, you will, um, remember that his teacher was a guy called Sri Yukteswar. And when yeah. Sri Yukteswar, passed away from this existence, he reappeared to uh, Yogananda many times and described to him this idea of an infinite number of spheres that he was now experiencing away from the third dimension, away from the limitations. And he uses the word infinite, and he said that it cannot be described in three-dimensional terms. Now, we've developed language whilst living here and experiencing three dimensions. We can't conceive of a language that will describe something that's outside of three dimensions. So we are, we are stuck with it. The only way you can experience, yeah, but you can experience infinity. If you do like shamanic journeying, any of this like consciousness altering stuff, you can experience it. But people that do absolutely without, without question all come back and say, but I can't describe to you. You have to experience it. Which doesn't help when we're trying to discuss it. But that, that makes a lot of sense. That does because what you're saying is we're only experiencing this because we've made, well, Fensky's saying as well, we've decided three perpendiculars. That's how we, we measure our world. But it's a geometric decision. It's not well, nothing to I'm do saying, with I'm saying even, Yeah, I'm saying even further that we've actually, from beyond three dimensions, we've said, Let's have an experience of three dimensions. What's it like to be imprisoned in three dimensions and, and only have these few little tools to play with? What would that be like? Would that be fun or would it be terrible? Let's go and, let's go and experience it. And as consciousness, yeah. And I think, you know, so we've designed our own theme park and here we are playing in it. And of course um, it does um, also uh, raise the question of are we also having a two dimensional experience somewhere? Yes. And a one dimensional. Yeah. One-dimensional. We, we go up, we go higher, you know, I mean, it's a, uh, and, and inherently on this, you know, when we look at from physics, we look at, you know, quantum physics and, and Newtonian physics, we can't put them together. We can't, there are no, so many things. We had we this last week, yeah. Yeah, so many things that we can't match. And when you can't match it, it's not that it isn't matchable, it's that you haven't got the parameters correctly defined to match it. Well, we invent fanciful things. We invent fanciful things. And, I mean, he comes onto it here uh, later on in, in this chapter. We invent things. We might as well say, oh, we've just invented a unicorn to actually map this part of cosmology to this part of quantum uh, mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the wrong way to look about it. We used to observe cosmology by looking at the observable universe and, and forming conclusions, replicating this in a lab, which you can do. Um, if you use quanta to describe cosmology, you're never going to match it. But if you use observable three-dimensional um, aspects of cosmology, you can describe it. We can describe massive um, electronic um, connections between galaxies, which we can now observe, physically observe, with the Hubble telescope that um, are only explainable in terms of things that we can replicate in a lab, scalable and repeatable. But um, this quantum stuff, they're never, they're always going to have gaps in the blackboards. They're going to have squiggles on that blackboard, squiggles on this blackboard, a big blackboard in the middle where you can't join it up. So we invent things like black holes and dark matter to fill the gaps. We might as well say we've just invented a unicorn and that's going to connect. I'd like a unicorn. I'd like to invent a unicorn. It might as well because of. I do like your analogy of the theme park because 
what you I think you were saying is that you know you could describe the uh, the universe as the big ride, and you could describe quantum physics as being the speck on the seat. You know, I mean, there's but no matter how you do it, there's still something outside of the theme park. Yeah, there is absolutely, and and it keeps going, and keeps it, and this is the infinite that we can't grasp. When you're talking about uh, science, because, I mean, Spensky has a lot to say about uh, measurable science, and, and, and I think what he's, what he's saying is, look, it's great to explain stuff to us, but it doesn't, it doesn't get to the crux of it. It's, it, it, it. If it tries to say uh, because of all of this we know, we know everything, then it's, it's, it's extending itself too far. But, uh, but I think what, what you're, sorry, I'm just saying, what you're saying, Pete, is that to, to live in this world, our science is, is doing us a lot of favours because it can give us some clues as to how to navigate our way around. It's almost like the, the math. Well, hang on. For the science, science does, but maths doesn't. The moment we had general relativity and special relativity, these uh, mathematicians went berserk and they created something that is so occult and obscure that maybe only they in the whole world have any grasp of it whatsoever. It doesn't describe what we observe. It describes concepts that even they can't understand. I mean, once you get to uncertainty and the idea that the observer changes the results of your experiment, you might as well pack in because there is no object. And how does that help us um, live in this world at all? How would knowing that help us at all? And we haven't chosen to come here to do that. Although I think that it, it does, I think it does help us. It helps us in the sense that we can look at it and say, there is something more. And when there's always, when you've got your mind open to something more than just, you know, then, then you can start to have a look at whatever outside. Well, hang on. In, in this chapter, he talks about the fact that the fellow says, this is, I can touch this table. It is real. So what can yeah, but that's what I mean about that's what yeah, but that's what I'm saying about um, mm. Dr. Johnson. That's that's the equivalent of what he did when he kicked the rock. I can touch this table and say it's real. That doesn't refute everything else. The philosophical discussion that we're having. Whenever maths or science comes to a block, it just lets us know there's going to be something more. There's something more we have to look at, and I think that's uplifting. You know, and Spensky's well, a mathematician. I, I, I don't. I don't. I know, I, but I don't, I don't in this sense. I think, I think that quant, the quantum uh, stuff now has gone beyond its useful value. Um, we have had access to the infinite forever. We've had access to the there is something else beyond this by everybody that's ever meditated. And when I say meditated, I'm not about like nice little housewives that are sitting there having a relaxing time. I'm not about people that have gone for this um, nirvana or, or people in shamanic cultures who journey, who have this by the way, the experience doesn't expand outside. The expansion is inside, and, and that's another thing that's very, very difficult to describe. Um, Peter, I think but, we're but saying they do the same have thing. that knowledge. I think okay. we're saying the same thing, because what I'm saying is that if, you're, if, if science could explain absolutely everything, there would be no need to look further. The fact that we know that it can't explain things gives us an opportunity to say, well, what are we missing? And what we're missing is what this book is about. Yeah, I think that I, I'm sorry. I, I, I think I went off on a rant because I, I, I do think that, you know, the, the world has seemed to put such a value on these uh, great cosmologists and these, these great quantum investigators as though this is the most important work and that these are such special people. Frankly, I, I don't see the value in what they're doing and I don't rate them as being the cleverest people of all. I think they're people that have got themselves stuck in a trap uh, that, that only they can speak to, the, to, to each other about. And I, I don't think it enhances the experience of seven seven and a half billion people on this planet. I don't think it helps us to move forward with what we can do. I mean, the things that have brought value to me, we're using it now, the internet and things like this. No reliance on quanta or cosmology at, that, at the mathematical level whatsoever. I mean, none. None whatsoever. Um, cars, aeroplanes, um, communication, books, all of this stuff. I'm sitting in a chair, not on a rock in a cave. None of it was brought about by uh, Quanta. And I think that it's taking, thank goodness it's only a few people 
but it's taking those few people away. Maybe that is their 3D experience that they have to understand that, um, okay, we can try to search out these unknowable things as much as possible. And we need to, we need to have the lesson that we're not going to find anything that's valuable to us. Although our egos will be stroked because everybody else in the world will be thinking that we are the cleverest people on it. I don't think that they are. Although in, anyway. in the process we get more comfortable than we're, but I think we're digressing from where Ali wants to be. Yeah, we are. We are. Yeah. You are. You are. Have you have all gone rogue on me? So I'm going to <laughs> to bring it back. Okay. Right. So. Okay, let's not get too carried away because we know, well, I'm just going to point this out, that that Aspensky has a definite point of view about science and where it can go, and he has a definite point of view about mathematics, and he is a mathematician. But I think in all of this, he's not saying, you know, I'm going to open a, a door wide open so that you're going to experience something out of this world and then never be able to experience the three dimension again. Well, I think what he's saying is let's have a think about, let's have a think about, let's enjoy the ride at the fun park, but know that this is not the only ride there is, just to know, just yeah. to, to, out of curiosity. And so his, his whole journey is to let's just, let's just journey together um, with this, well, he says, come let us reason together. So let's just do that. So we're, we're back to this, this, concept that we are we are we make up we make up that three dimension this three-dimensional world is um, only measured by uh, three perpendiculars and what he says is if if there's infinite he says since we cannot construct more than three mutually independent perpendiculars and if the three-dimensionality of our space is conditional upon that because we have decided we are forced to admit the indubitable fact of the limit limitedness of our space in relation to geometrical possibilities. And I think that's an important point for the rest of the book because what he's saying is that we have, we have made geometry the definer of our space. Uh, and, and it's like we've, we just chosen this as our, that's our starting point, I suppose, for the, for living here. Um, and that, then he says, though, of course, if the properties of space are created by some limitation of consciousness, then the limited limitedness lies in ourselves. So we we have chosen to limit this three dimensional space to a geometrical definition of three perpendiculars. Can I ask a question though? You guys might have an answer there. You know, when we talk about three perpendiculars and only having three perpendiculars, they they've got to be at ninety degree angles. But we can conceive of lines um, that go at different angles. So I I'm and I think Helena Blavatsky mentions this too. It's like, well, hang on, you know, we're not, we've chosen to be limited to three, but we can actually, we actually can conceive of lines that go off at different degrees, 45 degrees to a perpendicular. I know that that would then have to be at 90 degrees to another imaginary perpendicular, but we can actually, I mean, you can see where we're going to get into an infinite mess here. And this is what Blavatsky was saying. It's like, you know, why are you wasting your time on this? Go and experience it. But the three perpendiculars I find quite interesting because it does allow us to describe the world that we see and that we we feel that we are interacting with very, very well. Uh, I think it serves us really well. These three, uh, we, we say three perpendiculars at 90 degrees, and Spensky says the same thing. He says, well, what, what if we chose uh, nine, uh, 30 degrees? So yeah. our, perpen- our, our, not perpendiculars, but our lines are, were at 30 degrees. We'd have nine dimensions of space. So the fact that we've chosen three, it's a strange concept. Why only three? We have said arbitrarily that we're going to measure length, uh, breadth and height. That's how we measure three dimensions. But we could choose, we, to, well, we could choose to measure oblique. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we, we could choose. Degrees. Exactly right. We've chosen 90 degrees and at 90 degrees, you only get three lines that could intersect without being parallel to each other. So you can, you can either get one going up, down. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Well, what the way it works, I mean, is that for any line that we do choose, whatever angle, we can always create um, a perpendicular to it. So um, even if we went off at a, say, a 45 degree angle, we could then geometrically construct another line that will run 
and parallel at 90 degrees to it. I'm not parallel and um, at 90 degrees to it. So we would end up, but we'd still end up with an infinite series. We would end up with an infinite series. Yeah. We, and we, and we could, and we could conceive of it. We could conceive of that. Yeah. Because if we said 45 degrees was our measure. So in the, at this 45 degree and then at 45 degrees to that, we'd have six, six lines that could be at 45 degrees to each other. And we said that's how we're going to measure. We'd have 18. Uh, a table. Oh, have we? Oh, let me think. Well, we'd have, so because we got, would have to have the fourth, we would have to have oh, the 45 yes, degree yes, yes. For, for all three of the perpendiculars. Yes, so yes, yes, So we'd have 18 dimensions. So if we were going to measure a, a, a cube, for example, we would say it's got length, breadth, height, half length, half breadth, half height, <laughs> you know, and so, then this so direction. Would a, would direction. A cube, uh, would, yeah, would a cube have like, you know, 18, whatever it is, 36 sides or whatever? It would just, it would just be, and I think that's what he's saying. We, we have just arbitrarily said, okay, 90 degrees is, is how we're going to measure dimensions of that aren't flat, things that are, have some um, depth to them. And so we're going to, we're going to choose 90 degrees. This is what ge- geometry has done and said that's length, breadth, height. That's how we measure something three dimensional, but it's just a geometric concept. It doesn't, it's something we've chosen to explain what we the, the three dimensions we're living in it's, it's just it's just a concept so i'm missing i'm missing something here i'm missing something uh because when i look at a 45 degree i think to myself well i can still do that by a combination of the three dimensions that we've got here i'm going to put that in as you know i can describe that still within my three dimensions in my head so there is a concept here that i think uh, with, uh, it's, well, it's, it's almost seems to be well, like a little point. bit of terminology that's coming through as opposed to reality. Reality is not the word I want to use. That I'm not really seeing why that's another dimension. I'm seeing that still, 45 degrees, I'm still seeing as part of this three dimensions. Well, if we, if we saw the 45 degree, um, oblique, um, as a plane, because we, we would have to if we were relating it to, um, a three dimensional object, then things that have got, um, like a cube has six faces would suddenly have, um, an extra two, two faces for each, each of the current, uh, faces because we've been seeing faces within. It's like, it's like seeing something in a diamond where you're starting to see facets within, within a diamond that, that don't describe. If, if we had a princess cut diamond, it would look like a square if you were looking down at it two dimensionally. But if you look, um, through a lens into a princess cut diamond, you're going to see multiple facets. We would be looking at the world like that with seeing, seeing objects with multiple angles and multiple faces, faces that we don't see now. And that, that's, that's what we would be doing. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's, it's just, it's our convention we've chosen. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure how. Yeah. I'm, I'm not quite sure how we are said to. Ignore them. We're not saying to ignore them. The concept is we choose three dimensions. I think the word I'm I'm not struggling with, but not putting a correct, you know, where did that choice, what was that choice? Why are we saying it's a choice here? Beyond us. This is where intuition's coming in, and this is where consciousness is coming in. That choice is made way, way beyond the rational mind. The rational mind is so feeble um, in my experience, and especially my experience as a hypnotist, I wouldn't be able to hypnotize anybody if the conscious mind wasn't so easy for me to overcome. Uh, and it is feeble. It is feeble in everybody, except Hannibal Lecter, who's a fictional character. But um, oh, and Jason Bourne. The the thing is that we've we've got this we've got this experience here. We've we have chosen and I know understand that linguistically this is where we, we struggle. Language is our problem, not what we experience. It's how we describe it. Uh, we're going to use a word like chosen. We've, we've chosen to experience it like this so that we can make meaningful sense of it and have an experience. But um, like you say, that we, we could on other planes have chosen to have a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh dimension. We could be having that simultaneously with this one. We're just not aware of it because the third dimension is a prison of our creation to have the experience within. And we wouldn't be having the three-dimensional um, experience 
if we had allowed ourselves to be aware of the fact that we are in something that's very limited in comparison with what real, true reality is beyond it. And I think too, what you're saying is is exactly. I think I think that's exactly Bespensky's point. He's saying that, and to your point, Sue. Yes, you would you you could say if you had forty five degrees. It's just how we've chosen to explain something. If we use um, if we use ninety degrees, we say a, a plane is ninety degrees. When we put those together, we get a cube. If it was at forty five degrees, we'd say, well, that triangle. Add to that triangle, add to that triangle, add to that triangle, and that makes a cube. It's it's actually just it when you say it's semantics, it is semantics, and that's what, what that's his exact point. We have just arbitrarily chosen geometrically to say we can measure length, breadth, and height. It doesn't mean that's all we can measure. It doesn't mean that that's all there is. It's just this is how we are going to explain the world of the three dimensions. It's a geometrical it's a geometrical concept only. That's all he's saying. It's not. It's got nothing to do with how we're really experiencing it. Even it's just how we have had it explained to us. That's all he's saying, and that, that's it. That's all his point is, um, as far as I can understand it. It says um, there isn't, and, and he said out of that three dimensions. Then, well, this is sort of the segue into the next part of the book. He says, okay, well, let's just take it that we we have this sense of length, breadth, and height. Why would we think there was a fourth dimension? Why would that even come into our heads? And and he moves into the point, he says, well, that's if we're experiencing our reality in this geometrical definition and we can measure something with length, breadth and height and we say that's what really is existing, how do we explain other things that we know are really existing, like the concept of good and evil? So we're saying a house is really existing and the concept of good and evil is really existing, but we can't measure the concept of good and evil by length, breadth, and height. But we could measure a house by length, breadth, and height. So, so he's saying that, that this is where the fourth dimension thought has come in because we know that there are different types of reality existing at the same time that we're aware of. There are certainly immeasurable on, on the three. I agree with you, Ali. I mean, I agree with Spinsky. There are three. There are certainly elements that we cannot describe as in, in three dimensions. A thought, a concept, you know, those are, um, but we know that we, we, we do know. We, we deal with them all the time, don't we? We just can't define them. You know, I think his point is, is a segue into his book, isn't it? That's what he's starting to talk about. Well, he's saying there are physical facts and metaphysical facts and they're measured differently. He says that uh, you can you even treat the concepts differently. He said you can destroy a house by wrecking it, by setting it on fire, by actually having an action on that house. But you can't destroy an idea in the same way. As soon as you start putting an action on that by denying it, refuting it, arguing it, you're actually giving it more life. You're not destroying it. But by ignoring it, no action, the idea disappears, whereas no action on a house, it stays. It's it's the way we deal with both of them, both set types of reality to us is even different. So I guess, yeah, so what is he saying? What is he saying here? Uh, we know that there are different types of reality and yet we're saying we're having a three-dimensional experience, so maybe there is a fourth dimension. Maybe there is something that doesn't exist in the three dimensions that we still experience. Um, does everything have to be measurable to be valuable? So, I mean, thoughts and ideas, we know a concept isn't going to be measurable. The idea is, I mean, he's actually touching on something here that um, Plato talks about in The Republic and the idea of forms in, in Plato, the translation of Plato he talks about forms and shadows. What he's talking about is the essence of things. And we can have the idea of, house not a house but house in general being a building where people live and so on and that that is the the abstract concept of of house shamanic cultures do this all the time you know you don't see a wolf when you do a shamanic journey you see wolf not it doesn't have an indefinite article there's no definite article you see the essence of of wolf what is what is a um the concept of wolf 
And that's what you see. And we have the same idea when we have an idea of a house. And you can't destroy the idea. What you can destroy is the physical um, expression that you create from that idea. And that's how he's separating them. Um, this idea of the, the essence of something that we do see in the third dimension. So let's say a house, since he uses that, that example. We can have an idea of what, what it, it is to have a house. We can describe a house in terms of certain attributes. It's going to provide shelter. It's got to have a way of getting in and getting out. Does a house have to have windows? No. But for it to function as a house, i.e. as a shelter, um, it's got to have a way of getting in and out, and it's actually got to provide some shelter. So you'd have to say that it would be a strange house that had no walls and no doors and no roof. You know, so, but the idea of a house um, or any other object, we can we can describe it in terms of its essence. And I mean, actually, Plato does a really good job of describing that. And I, I would recommend that you know you look at Plato's description of forms in in the analogy of the cave and the shadows in the cave when he's talking about the mm. the essence of three dimensional objects, including living objects. Um, and that does a does a really good job of describing this idea of essence. But the, the translated um, words that Plato uses, the best translation is mm. forms. So you'll hear people talk about platonic forms. And he's just talking about the concept of a thing rather than the thing. It's what we would call the physical expression of a thing. The phenomena of it. Yeah, so the phenomena of it. That's the, that's that's the way that Ospensky would describe it. Yeah. But but they both are valid. Now that I think a great point that Ospensky, well, he he makes it for me, and I might be misinterpreting it. But the idea is that we can't devalue thought, and we can't lessen it, or we shouldn't make it any less than the physical objects, the physical phenomena that we seem to attach so much value to. And yeah, from, and, yeah. From, from the point of view yeah. that the work that you and I do, Al, with with regard to you know miracle and and manifestation and so on if we devalued the concept of thought that wouldn't happen and yet i have my own personal experience that it happens all the time which is why i teach it so, mm, no i'm with you too. so uh he's, he's talking about a coin is a physical thing but the value of a coin is a metaphysical thing and that we we tend to say that the two go together you can't have the value of a coin without the coin and vice versa but Spensky's questioning that and saying, can't you? Yeah, you can, because you can have a coin without it having any value. You don't have to put any value on it whatsoever. It can just be intrinsic in of itself. Oh, yeah, I know what you're saying. True. I guess what he's saying is, though, if you talk about the value of a coin, you're assuming that there is some physical coin that has a value, as opposed to just the value of a coin being an, uh, a phenomena in itself. He's saying that... Uh, you know, why can't we say the value of a coin is independent and has doesn't have to have a coin attached to it? I think, again, we we, can, we fall into the linguistic trap. If if by calling it a coin, we are assuming or, or making an assumption that it is used as a means, a medium of transaction in some way. Otherwise, we would just be calling it a circle of metal. Is there anybody on earth that doesn't think of a a metal object Used as a medium of exchange when you use the word coin. So, so it, so then we come back to the abstract. The very word itself, language is an abstract. So the very word coin itself is the metaphysical, um, object here. And all we're left with is a physical one, a physical phenomena, which does, which in it, of itself is nothing unless we give it this abstract value of being a medium of exchange. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Sue? What's your, what are your no, thoughts? No, I'm, I'm so, totally with you guys. What I'm just, we've been musing about while we've been chatting, and I've got, can't find the exact quote in, in the book. When he starts off and he talks about us being able to go and, and think about something external to ourselves, we, we will not know until we take our own personal interpretation out of it, until something is extracted for us to be able to step aside and, and view you know, the third dimension of its own in a different way. I'm just there and think, when with all these concepts, where is the us in that? Where is our consciousness in that concept? I guess it's because we've, we've had to construct it internally. 
haven't we? We've, we've, we've added something of us to each of those constructs. I'm not saying this particularly clearly, but can we take ourselves out of that concept and say what is that concept without us being personally attached to it? I'm going to say that we can't because we haven't. Um, the very fact that we have discussions like this and, and everybody does, you know, through, who, who investigates this has these discussions means that there are as many points of view on any one given, uh, well, no, it's not a given, on, on any one idea as, as there are people. There are as many points of view as there are people. So, you know, we, I don't think we can take ourselves out of it, nor do I believe that we, we are meant to. So we're still we're still we're still limiting this, aren't we? We're, we're still we've got we we are still part of this process of being in that three dimensions. Is we are still doing this in terms of us, subjective and objective. It still comes back to those the initial things that Spencer talks about: consciousness and the world. And we have not yet taken ourselves and been separated out from that concept. It's not particularly clear what I'm saying. I understand, but um, no, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting it. Um, psychonauts are doing this, people who are exploring altered states of consciousness. Now, there are psychology labs in the scientific world where they're investigating this with some intensity all the time. There are people outside of science who just do it. Um, and you can do this in a million different ways. But there, there's where the investigation is going to give you experience. The problem is the psychology labs are really doing great work in trying to find a way of expressing that in terms that we can understand and go, ah, oh, yeah, now I get it. I get what's outside of us. They, they, find a dip, they, they don't find a difficulty in having test subjects that have experiences. What they really struggle with is finding ways of expressing what the experience their subjects have had in terms that can make sense in, in, in the world outside of their lab. It's like trying to describe the colour red to a blind person. How do you do that? They have to have experienced the colour red to understand what you're saying. Oh, you, now, you, now you, yeah. you just made me explode now. How do you do that? What? <laughs> I was just saying the language is so limited that it's something as simple as trying to describe the colour red to somebody who's never seen red. It cannot do. That's, that's, that's the limitation of our language. So if you haven't experienced it, you, you, how do you, how do you explain it? Because we explain things in terms of something else that we already know. It's like yeah. this. It's, if you take that, it's something similar to this. And if you haven't seen it, you haven't had it, there's nothing to compare it and, to. And don't we, don't we come across this concept? Um, he doesn't use the word, but duality here, because he's talking about concepts like good and evil and one can't exist without the other. We can't have a concept um, of one without without the other to to compare it with. Well, so that's the infinite concept where he says if something's yeah. infinite, it has to be everything, yeah. including its opposite, because it's infinite has obviously um, every aspect, every, every aspect yeah, of every it. Every single so, aspect, yeah. So yeah. we're thinking about the infinite existence, then. Everything is just the opposite, the same, and everything in between. Um, I want to I want to bring this along to the point that he makes after this is because because we talked about you know our knowns and our unknowns, and he's talking about we are very used to hearing the words matter and force, like uh, energy, like matter and energy. That's how our world is described to us when we go to school. That's what we learn. And his concept is we are given these two buzzwords to, to explain how this world works. So matter is something that uh, puts a, a resistance to a force and a force is something that matter resists. It's kind of the describing one unknown with another because he's saying that we, we, don't, we have never seen matter and we have never seen uh, force or energy. We've only seen the resultant of it. And, and this is where Blavitsky, I think the, the quote that he talks about, she says that we intuit matter when we see it in a form. So we see the matter of a cube. We see the matter of a sphere, but we don't actually see matter. We see it manifest in a, an object and we see the effects of a force. Something moves, but we never see the force. So we really don't have 
those two things nailed down to what they are. So they are unknowns. Um, and this is, this is where he's, where he's coming to with this. If, if we understand that we can't, we can't start with that, that unknown point of view. We have to, we have to t- take that as an unknown and still look for what, what the essence of things are. I find it a hard concept in some ways. I mean, I, I, I can understand what he's saying and I think he's, he's, you know, we don't really see it. But it almost seems like it's packed that um, initial concept of the people saying everything here is unreal. And, and that's a concept that I find unhelpful. Yeah, we are manifesting, we are living in this three dimensions, aren't we? And so, yes, I understand we don't don't understand everything about it and I I see intellectually his point of view and I agree intellectually with his point of view, I must say, but it's still a little bit difficult to say, well, what would that, what would matter be and what would force be if we were able to comprehend it in its, essence as opposed to its manifestation what would it be what are we and that's the question he poses that's that's the very question he's posing he says if i might quote uh, before you start peter that's all right um he says who has ever seen matter and force and when we see things as phenomena matter independent of the thing from which we have which it's made so the cube or the, or the um, sphere, you know, matter independent of, of those things, um, we've never seen. We only see the things made of matter. And this is what Blavetsky is saying as well. Similarly, we never see force separate from motion. We always see the motion that force produces. So what does this mean? It means that matter and force are just abstract conceptions, like the purchasing power of a coin or the contents of a book. That's, that's his Point. And I'll go back, and I'll go back to Plato because that's exactly what Plato is doing with the, the cave and the shadows and form. It's, you can never see the thing in a, uh, of itself. We, we only, you know, we don't, we don't see the essence of a thing. We see the phenomena of a thing. We see, we see, um, the product of force on the essence of matter and, the, and that, that produces a phenomena. It's, <laughs> It's a, it's an old concept, yeah. It's an old concept, like I say. I mean, and, and I bet you that Plato didn't didn't come up with it um, first. That a lot of ancient philosophers, for whom we have no texts available either. Um, but the fact of it is that people have been having having this going round in their head for a long, long time. And in it's Greek, a hard it, was, it, was, it was it it's a very very difficult concept. I think that you know you make a fantastic point, Sirs, that. Um, we have to just accept this. And I think this is what Espensky does. I mean, he's taking us down all of these roads, but his conclusions as we move on are, and we can spend our entire lives going around in some kind of circular horror of trying, of trying to have an understanding of, of this stuff and then suddenly find that we've missed out on our, our lives. Um, at some point, we do just have to accept that we can sit in a chair. You know that yeah. people can talk about people can talk about this being an illusion all they like, and I do. You know, to that extent, I do agree. You know that you know the matter is an illusion. We can we can manifest out of seemingly thin air, but at the moment, I'm sitting on a chair, and I'm glad of its support. Uh, yeah, and, and you, know, you knew when you sat down that it was there, there for you to sit on. It wasn't going to disappear I, I, into, I had, into oblivion. I had every faith. I, I didn't, yeah, and I didn't have to sit there with, stand here with some trepidation, uh, wondering whether or not I would end up flat on my ass on the floor when I, when I, when I lowered myself into it. I had to, I had to have this trust that the phenomena was going to support me. And I think, you know, that that's actually understanding that is quite valuable. Trust, the idea of, of trust in our experience. Yeah. And he finishes the chapter with this. Space is either a property of the world or a property of our knowledge of the world. Three-dimensional space is either a property of the material world or a property of our receptivity of the material world. Our inquiry is confined to the problem. How shall we approach the study of space? And that's where he ends, chapter two, to be continued. 
Yeah. It certainly is. It is a, and you know, for a small, in the book, a relatively small chapter, like all his chapters are, there is so much in this chapter. And I will probably need to go through it 45 times before I sit down and say I've got all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm glad, I'm glad that you've got a, a finite number on it. <laughs> Why 45? Why not 42? <laughs> why? Because why? That, I, why? <laughs> that was an intuitive number that came up from, from something That's internal it. and unknowable. Well, I, it was better than saying an infinite number of times. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd bring it back to the edge. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, God. I think it has been a rollicking good conversation. Uh, I think a, a very interesting chapter, and uh, the listeners, of course, can hear this chapter um, read out as part of this podcast, and also uh, they can obviously read the chapter. I just want to just want to say, you know, like a, a good American uh, TV show, I'm going to give you a coming next on the Spensky. Oh yes, do we have this tiny little chapter? You know, on the relationships of, in, in space. It's about four pages long. But I want people to get ready for the one after that, where we're going to start talking about the concept of time. So, Doctor Who fans out there, get ready. Yes. yes. <laughs> even, even, I would even suggest the Matrix fans too. Just yeah, to, you know. absolutely. Oh, God. Yeah. No, well, we, we're now going into the total illusion, aren't we? Yes, yes, yes. We're, 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 uh, we're out of time as well. So, Thank you so much for, for being here today and having this rollicking good discussion. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And uh, I, I look forward to more of these as we go through each chapter. Thank you very My much. My pleasure. Andy. It's going to be great.